You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Bart Rupert. He is Managing Director of Spartan Alliance, which teaches entrepreneurs how to buy and sell companies. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that business. We're also going to talk about Stone Peak Alliance, which is an M&A firm helping companies figure out how to achieve growth, achieve exits through the M&A process. I'm always fascinated by this. I think, you know, a lot of people start businesses, you know, with dreams and aspirations of selling them one day, you know, having a liquidation, having a cash out event, you know, but it's, it's hard. It's not easy. And Bart has obviously seen a lot of these. So we're going to talk a little bit about what makes it successful, what are some of the strategies people use, how can really that work for folks, and, and what do people need to do to you know make that a reality, make that dream come true. So with that, I want to thank Bart for being part of the program, and Bart, welcome. Thank you, Bruce. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about background. I mean, how did you get into the M&A space? I mean, I don't think when I was in kindergarten, no one was saying that, yeah, I want to be an M&A expert, right? This is not something that I think you you think about early in careers. How did you get into this whole kind of world of buying and selling companies? I really fell into it. It was not, as you said, deliberate at all. Yeah. When, when I was growing up, I was extremely destitute financially. And it didn't take long to figure out that the big thing that our entire family was lacking was any degree of wealth. Couldn't pay the light bills, couldn't keep up with anything really financially. So when I was growing up, everybody said, look, the way you're going to achieve success is you go to school and you become either a doctor or a lawyer. And so I started down the path of, of going to be uh, a doctor. I actually couldn't afford to get through college on that front. It was just too expensive to go after yeah. a medical degree. So, and I did very well in school. I just didn't have the funds to get there. So I took what I knew at the point of that time in my life to be the next best option, which basically everybody had said, okay, well, what you need to do is become an executive at a company. Mm-hmm. So I pursued at that point what I'd call the executive path where I said, all right, what I'm going to do is go find a company really well performing. I'm going to conquer that hill and get to the top of that, and I'll make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And while I was on that path, I actually came across this uh, very entrepreneurial company that I, I started working for as a consultant. I was making great money. But the CEO of that company, and he had about 400 employees, was this guy that was just larger than life. He he wore this pinstripe suit. It had his initials <laughs> on it. He, he yeah. paid himself, this is back in like the 90s, he paid himself like $365,000 a year so he could tell everybody he was making $1,000 a day. He was just a uh-huh. big figure. And I looked at that and said, wow, the executive path really isn't the way to go. This guy's an entrepreneur. He started his own company. That's yeah. the way to get there. Yeah. So I got really yeah. excited by that. And then while I was with that company, I got pulled into these conversations that were very cryptic, that nobody would really tell me why we were having these dialogues, but they'd say, hey, this division you're running, which was a very 
new division at the time, but it was growing pretty quickly. We need mm-hmm. you to come in and explain to a bunch of people what you're doing, how it works, what that is ultimately going to do for the company. I didn't know why. And yeah. come to find out that they were selling the business. And they needed somebody that could represent what that division was doing effectively to get the most value out of it. And Mm -hmm. I went through that process kind of unwittingly until they finally admitted, yeah, we're going to flog the company. We need you to help represent it. And I got Mm -hmm. in there. I met with these people. I was in the boardroom discussions, really found I loved it. And we sold that company. And the owner, who didn't even have the majority at that point, he cleared like $20 million dollars. Yeah, and nice. when I saw that, I was like, wow, I've gotten all this wrong. It's not being a lawyer or doctor. It's not being an entrepreneur. And it's not even starting your own company, although that can be great. The real yeah. trick, regardless how you get there, is selling a company. Yeah. And statistically, if you go and look at the numbers, Morgan Stanley tells us, and Bloomberg backs this up, that 88% of all new wealth created is done through either the sale of a company or the sale of real estate. And as soon as you tap into that and you realize that's where the vast majority of wealth, true wealth is coming from, not income, then you have to ask yourself, how do I get in on that game? And I really found that I loved it. I found I had a talent for it and really have been down that path ever since. Yeah. And what is that game? I mean, I've sold a company, so I kind of, you know, I've got some firsthand experience. But, you know, as someone who's gone through that several times, both being part of it and kind of advising help people people with the process, give us some insight on really what drives sort of the game or the transaction or the dynamic of a purchase and sale of a company. What's involved in that? Most people like to go down really complex elements of this, like looking at valuations and how to actually structure EBITDA. I'm going to boil it down really simplistically. If you think of these shows that are on television about flipping houses, that's mm-hmm. what we do every day. And mm-hmm. it really is just like flipping a house. You go in, you assess whether the house, metaphorically in this case the company, is mm-hmm. actually worth buying. Does it have good foundational structure? Does it have bones that are worthwhile? What does it need to have fixed up? Is it just a roof? Do you need to tear down some walls? And then you determine what you can do to make it better. And once you've taken, uh, taken control of it and you've made it better, then you just turn around and flip it. And there is an incredible amount of money to be made in between that. Now, I'll also yeah. say most people make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, what that means is that I've got to buy 100% of the company or I've got to have my own capital. So I've got to start with millions of dollars to make millions of dollars, both of which are not true. In fact, most of the acquisitions we're doing right now are ones where we're doing minority interest stakes so that ultimately... I don't have to be the person that comes in and becomes the CEO and does that whole thing again. A lot of people want that. I mean, I'm at a point where I've been there, done that. So it's more Mm -hmm. important to me to have somebody else that runs it. So I'll come in and take minority interest stakes in a bunch of different companies, help guide them either as a board of directors or as a consultant or as somebody who's an advisor on the path towards an exit and then help them with the sale of it. And you can build out an entire portfolio without actually having to have a day job, if you will, that results in a ton of income for you. The other side of it is that you can, the way we structure all of our contracts is you can line it up for annual, quarterly, or monthly distributions. So without actually having to work just through your equity interest, you get paid on the profit or your percentage of the profit of each company that you own a piece of. Now, that's a great way to do it. It also begs the question of, okay, well, I'm going to need all this money, whether it's a minority or majority stake. Also not the case. We've pioneered some really great strategies for being able to take control either in the majority entirely or in the minority 
of companies without using our own capital. And that's what really makes this infinitely powerful because if you look at a situation to where you don't have capital investment or you've got minimal capital investment, your upside yeah. potential is in the many thousands or tens of thousands of a percentile, right, in terms of what yeah. your return yeah. is. Uh, so it becomes a very, very scalable model. But is this like a venture capital game where you have to do, you know, 10 deals and, you know, nine of them are going to flop and one of them is going to shoot the moon and that's where you make your money? Or do they all make money? How, give us a sense of the kind of the portfolio strategy and, and performance, you know, expectations. Yeah, most of the M&A groups that are out there, their model, or brokerages, they're famous for this yeah. as well, most of their model is let's get as many as we possibly can and hope a couple of them bingo. Yeah. And what I would tell you is that hope is not a plan. So our <laughs> model actually takes that and flips it on our side. We work with the few, not the many. And mm-hmm. the strategy is that every company we take on, we've positioned ourselves as agents to be able to help it succeed. So like personally, I've grown companies from many companies from startups to many millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. I've taken a company from 8 million to over 75 million. I've taken a company from 22 million to over 115 million, all on a path to an exit. And I can tell you that's hard work, right? There's a lot of effort and energy involved, mm-hmm. but the hard work can be done by virtually anybody as long as they've got the will and capacity. The part that's difficult is making the right decision for the next stage of growth of that company to take it to the next level. But that's not rocket science either. It's primarily just experience. If you've been there and you've walked mm-hmm. through those gating factors to be able to get the company to the next stage of growth, you know what to expect. And you can make a more qualified decision because you've been there. And that's part of the value we can add is to say, yeah, let, let's give you a hand just by pointing in the right direction on some of the things you need to do and help you with some of these efforts to take shortcuts to get to that higher threshold so that you don't have to go and suffer and spend like five years in a certain stage. You can just basically skip to the front of the line. And that's a far more elegant way to get that growth to accelerate, especially for services companies, because with services companies, there's all these different artificial ceilings that you bump into that if you could just make a different decision or look at things a little bit differently with somebody who's been there, you get that better outcome, you get further along in that process. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I, I talk with clients all the time about this, which is they kind of have this vision or this map of, oh, well, we're going to grow X percent every quarter and it's going to be this kind of linear path. And, and in fact, it's much more kind of sprints, right? Like we have to go from where here to this next stage. And the faster we can get there, the, actually, the better it's going to be because we're going to avoid this like uncomfortable, unprofitable, murky middle ground. And we have to get to that. Next, and then, then we have to kind of, you know, shore things up. We have to, you know, stabilize things, you know, get, get things kind of working well again before we make the next jump. But it's a series of jumps you make, not this kind of path that you're walking along. Tell us, like, as in your experience, as you've seen kind of particularly on the service companies, what are some of these ceilings or what are some of these breakpoints that you run into and why does it happen? Like, what's the underlying kind of dynamic that creates these kind of ceilings for folks? Yeah, that's a great question. And the way we define that with an organization is there's different stages of growth of an organization. Mm -hmm. And we've worked with different psychologists and different folks that are actually looking at business models across thousands of companies and actually defined five different stages of growth and what causes that. And what we've seen it boil down to is two things. First of all, where the leadership is at in terms of their headspace, and then where the organization is at culturally, and also from just an operations perspective. So what we find is that at a certain point, like let's use a, a small company example, at a certain point where an organization in services hits 20 people, 
Mm-hmm. If your organization right now is around 18, 22 people, and you're wondering, why can't I get bigger? Why does it seem to always make two steps forward and three steps back? It's typically because there's elements of your progression or graduation into the next stage of growth that aren't there. And I'll give you a couple examples. One that every business leader can work on and should work on themselves is their own headspace and their own leadership capabilities. Most folks that get stuck at the 20 employee range, it's because the owner of the company is not yet ready to let go and empower their staff to take things on themselves. So for example, If you get a company from one employee to 20 employees, it takes a certain skill set where you are a doer, you are directly involved, you're getting things done day in, day out. You're a worker bee working with the other worker bees to be able to get stuff done. Yes, you're providing guidance and leadership and direction and decisions, but you still consider yourself, if you look at your job function, a doer. If you're going to go to the next stage, which is above 20 employees, you've got to transition that to where you're giving your managers or executives or at least somebody empowerment to run that part of the company without your involvement. And when I say that, I don't mean take an extreme stance and walk away from it entirely. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got to empower those folks and trust them to be able Mm -hmm. to get in there and do that without micromanaging them. You become a different leader. Instead of a doer and somebody working side by side, you become a bit more of a mentor and a coach. And if you can't make that transition, you won't be able to graduate to the next stage of growth because your people are going to feel like, well, I got to run through you for everything. You're mm-hmm. going to be the bottleneck and the business will not grow. Similarly, yeah. the organization has to be ready. And so you've got to have, and I think it's something you talk on your podcast a lot about, which is you've got to make sure that you've got all the operational elements in place. You've got to make sure you've got the equipment, the staff, you know, how you're going to be able to hire people. You've got a plan to be able to train them up. You've got to have clarification between the different job roles and descriptions so that this person knows where their job function ends and the next person's begins. And how are those two going to coordinate and work together? And also making sure the cultural issues are addressed to where, you know, Donnie doesn't hate Bobby and and Susie doesn't like Johnny. And you got to be able to overcome that and say, look, guys, we've got to figure out a way to grow together and make sure everybody's properly incented. But the biggest thing that I see folks run into is not quite seeing like, how do I graduate to that next level of leadership? And there's five distinct stages. And what I find though is most entrepreneurs or business owners, as soon as you sit down with them and say, right, here's what's going on with your business. And in order for the business to take the next step, you've got to evolve as a leader and become this particular role. Most people love that. They're like, oh, I got it. That really clicked mm-hmm. for me. And now I know what I need to work on. Now I know what I need to change to be able to take it to the next level. And those are the ones that you see move through those phases really quickly and get that accelerated growth without a whole lot of hiccups. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, I, I find that a, it's, it's such a headspace game in terms of like how people, you know, mindset, how are they thinking about themselves, their role. And a lot of the problem is they just don't have a model for that next stage. It's not, it's not so much they don't want to get there. It's just they don't know what there is. And, and once they kind of figure out, oh, I understand, like leading at this next level looks like this. This is, this is my interaction with my senior folks. This is how I hold people accountable. This is how I do strategic planning. You know, this is how I spend my time. This is where I focus in terms of my energies. Like all those things end up becoming so important. Give us a little sense of what are some of the other kind of choke points or, or ceilings that people kind of run into, you know, whether it's kind of practically or, you know, from a mindset point of view. 
I mean, cause it, it gets more and more complicated, right? Like running a company of, you know, 500 people is very different than 50 people. What are some of the things that happen after that? Yeah. And, and this one's a little bit divergent from what most people talk about, but I'll tell you what I've learned over the years growing a lot of companies. There are easy ways and hard ways to do it. And I'll just, I'll give you my favorite shortcut on that front is that don't underestimate the power of being able to buy a competitor. And what I mean by that is that I got trapped for many years into the idea that the only way I'm going to be able to grow this thing is organically. And yeah. so I'm, I'm going to look at all the metrics you talked about. I'm going to set the goals with the executive team. Let's grow by 20% this year. Let's make sure our margins are X. Let's do this, that, and the other, be able to operationally succeed. And, and you, you kind of work your way through it. And that's very good and necessary. But what really accelerated my game is when I realized I can just turn around and buy the competitor next door. <laughs> exactly. Why, why go head to head on the next contract right. when I can just like, yeah. And the benefit of it to your question earlier is that not only do I take out the competition, so there's like one less person that I got to go and compete with, but yeah. I take their best talent, their best operations, uh-huh. their best equipment, their office space, whatever it is that I need for the next stage of my growth mm-hmm. and say, yeah, you're now part of my solution to where I'm going to take uh, essentially guerrilla tactics. And instead of going and recreating or rebuilding what you've done and trying to beat you up, even if it's something like IP, like you've got a better digital strategy than I do, let me yeah. just go and buy you. And once I've figured out how to merge with you, buy you, et cetera, then I can just incorporate you into the fabric that I've got and grow the company that way. And that really is, is the way that you can, you can literally double your revenue overnight with that strategy. Yeah. And, and that can, particularly folks that are on the path to an exit or looking for that big exit event to, to take part in that 88% of wealth creation, that's really the game. Because as soon as you realize with one conversation or one contract, your personal net worth on a transaction can double or triple, it's a game changer. Then the only question is, how do I turn around and do that as many times per year as the organization can sustain and that I can sustain to be able to to do that for, you know, a number of years and then look at that on my path to an exit? And at Spartans Alliance, that's what we help people do is working with those individuals to figure out how do we actually get you to be able to inorganically accelerate that growth and get towards that world class exit? And, and what goes into, uh, I guess I have kind of two questions around this. One, what goes into selecting, right? How do I decide, you know, maybe I even have multiple competitors in my space. Like, which one should I go after? Which one should I do first? Like, what's the selection criteria process? And then what do I need to have internally or, or how do I need to prepare my company to actually absorb or go through the merger process, right? Because I, I see, you know, I think that it's daunting for a lot of folks. And I think one of the reasons they don't do it is because they, they're concerned about what is the end result going to look like? Are the organizations really going to work together? Like, Give us a little sense about how you can sort of de-risk this by choosing the right party and making sure that you are well set up to be able to, to complete that transaction. It's an excellent question. I would go back to what Stephen Covey teaches us here and say, begin with the end in mind. And what I mean by that is identify for you personally, for your executive team, as well as for your company, what your biggest pain points are. Ask yourself that first before you even consider an acquisition, because you've got to figure out what am I trying to solve for? At this stage of my growth, am I solving for revenue? Am I solving for profit? Hopefully you are, no matter what. But also it's more complicated than that. Am I solving for talented staff? Am I solving for Mm -hmm. equipment to support my services, office space, customers? What am I really going after? What does the organization need to take it to the next level? And then you base your criteria for the companies you're going after off of that. 
and you'd be brutal about it. So you go in and you assess an organization. Worst mm-hmm. case scenario, you're going in to look at a competitor. You're going to learn their inner workings. So there's nothing yep. wrong with that. But yep. you're going to be able to figure out very quickly, do they meet the biggest pain my company's got? And if they do, engage, lean in on it. And then you you get into other complicated questions like how do I value it, et cetera. Uh, yep. We use software for that. We we don't. We used to spend like two weeks evaluating <laughs> every company, the spreadsheets and all this other stuff. Yep. Now we use a tool called Valuation X. It's very easy. We just go through in, in like 10 or 15 minutes. Our guys, any of them, can plug in the data on the company and the software spits out whether or not it's a viable company. And even more so, how do you make it more viable? That's yeah, exactly. the thing what we are the love levers? is like, what are the yeah. steps you specifically take? So we, we kind of cheat on that step because we don't want to waste a lot of time there. We really want to get to the point to where a systematized process can tell us this is where the company's at, this is what it's worth, this is what you can do to it, and that allows us to engage and figure out is this a viable candidate or not. Yeah, it's interesting. I, most of my work is kind of strategy development and execution on companies. And, and once we've got a good strategic map, like we know where we want to be in a couple of years, we know what the kind of core capabilities the company need to be in order to own that positioning, like that ends up becoming this kind of blueprint where I can go out and say like, okay, for each one of these, is it better to build this stuff? Like, do we spend the next three years building this thing? Or is there someone out there that already has this that we can just, you know, either partner with, buy, integrate somehow so that we can just, we can have it tomorrow, literally. But but it's the map that's key, right? Because without the map, then you're just kind of blindly like, oh, that looks like an interesting company. Should we do it? Well, I don't know. You know, versus if you have the map, it's very easy. Like, you just kind of walk around and, yep, this is a fit. Let's do it. Can we, you know, how do we make a deal? And, um, you know, so having that kind of end state in mind, this is where we want to be, is so key to then be able to make these good, effective, quick decisions that are going to help you grow. What, um, I mean, I'm curious on the valuation side, uh, from a practical kind of acquisition point of view, I always say, you know, the value lies in the eyes of the buyer. Right? So, you know, it doesn't matter what you think your company is worth. It matters what they think the company is worth. But from a buying point of view, if you're going to go out and buy a company and, and looking at the value, what, what are the factors that go into valuation from your point of view? Yeah, I would actually say it just slightly differently. You said yeah. the value is in the eye of the buyer. The way we like to look at it is the value is in the, in the eye of the seller. What we want to understand is what does the seller think it's worth? And what I mean by that is that you might come into a business as the buyer and think to yourself, wow, this thing's great because it's got all the equipment that I need. The services they're offering are complementary to mine, but not exactly the same. So there's a good strategic fit. You're excited about it. But what you don't realize just yet until you get into it, and this is where some of our asymmetric negotiation techniques come in, you don't realize that the seller is actually really stressed because they're concerned they're about to lose Mm -hmm. one of their big services contracts. Or Mm -hmm. maybe they're in the federal space and their contract's about to expire, that's about to go away. Or there's some sort of staffing issue they've got to where there was a fallout between a couple of key people and a couple of those folks are about to leave. Now, you're not really worried about that because you're looking at it going, well, the stage where I'm at at my company, I, I know I can fix that. But these mm-hmm. folks are literally lying awake, sweating through the bed sheets at 3 a.m., looking at the ceiling going, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Now, is that going to change their perception of the value of their company? Yes, it is. And Absolutely. if you don't know that they're sweating through the bed sheets at night, you're going to offer too much. You're going to base it off fundamentals. You're going to do what we call a traditional negotiation, and you're going to pay too much. You're going to lose on that transaction. Whereas if you use some more asymmetric strategies, you can actually figure out what the seller thinks the business is worth and really help promote understanding around that fact so that you can come in with the strongest possible position 
in the negotiation and also build rapport and empathize with that person for what they're going through, which strangely enough uh, or counterintuitively enough helps accelerate the transaction. Mm-hmm. By getting into their headspace, what we're able to do is take transactions that other folks take like nine or 12 months to complete. We can get those done in like six or eight weeks because yeah. we're able to identify with the seller more than ourselves and really figure out, okay, within the value they think this is worth and the influence we've got around their perceived value, can we get a deal done? Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that's super strategic and I think it's not typically how people approach negotiation, right? Typically people would sit down and say, okay, what is it worth to me? They'd figure out their numbers, figure out, okay, what, what is my maximal price? What do I want to start at? And then they kind of go into this conversation and they really don't do a great job of like, what is the other side going through? What are they thinking? And how is that going to impact how they show up and what then I should do strategically? Tell us about the, the asymmetrical negotiation process. How do you frame that? Yeah, so it is what you just described there. I mean, I think if, if we look at the traditional negotiation strategy being two people trying to assess where the other's at and then beating each other up for nine or 12 months. That can work. (laughs) That's the way everybody does it. And I I used to be very good at that. I mean, in in my younger days, I had a reputation for just going in there and just beating people with a hammer until I got what I needed. And what I can tell you is that that works. But number one, you don't build great rapport with that person, right? So it takes a whole lot longer and often they're resentful. So even when you have a victory there, the other party really doesn't like you very much. And and when you're looking at buying and selling companies, you want that person to be on your team because they're probably going to stick around, transition information to you. You can't have them hating you. And so really over the years, and I think just through maturation, really discovered these, these techniques that were just off the beaten path that Mm -hmm. nobody's out there saying, hey, this is how you should go and negotiate with somebody. But it really works. And and we call it within Spartans Alliance, asymmetric negotiation. The concept Mm -hmm. there is that I'm going to attack the problem from a bit of a divergent angle. I'm going to come at it from the side in a way that disarms the typical fears and concerns people have in a conversation or discussion. So for example, if you're trying to sell your services business and I want to be a buyer, I'm not going to come in and start doing the traditional thing, which is, well, we've run this through our model and we've looked at this, Bruce, and we think mm-hmm. even though you think your company's worth $20 million, your company's really only worth eight. And here's all the reasons why. What's going to happen automatically from a psychological perspective is you're going to get defensive. Because you're saying, yep. well, wait a minute, I've put like 10 years I'm of my life defend. into this yeah. thing. You can't tell me that yeah. this thing's worth $12 million than I, less than I thought. Now we're fighting. And that's not yeah. going to be conducive to a transaction. So the way that I would start off instead is I would ask a series of questions. And I would, I would begin by seeking to understand where you're at with it. And I would make it all about you. And, and what I tell everybody within our group is you need to do listening 75% of the time and talking no more than 25% of the time. If you're talking Mm -hmm. more than 25%, you're just blathering, you're disrupting the conversation, they're not getting out what they want to get out, and it's not going to be conducive to a deal. So I would start off with, let me just ask this, Bruce, what are you looking to get from this business sale? Like if you were to sell the business, I'm not saying you're interested in that, but if you were, what would you look to get out of it? And you're going to come out and say, well, you know, obviously I need money out of it. I'm like, yeah, of course you do. 
And, and I'm going to agree with you. And you're like, huh, well, that's kind of weird. I thought you'd push back on that, but okay. But yeah, <laughs> I need money and I need this and I need that. I want my staff to be taken care of. Yeah, yeah. What about the legacy of your business? Yeah, I want the legacy to be taken care of, the brand name and everything we've created because we've built this phenomenal thing. All these companies come to us that you know are between a certain range of like a million and a hundred million dollars. They come to us for advice, guidance. I need to maintain that. You're like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what do you really want? What's important to you? And we start to make it about what's critical to you. And the part that really gives the, the asymmetric negotiation technique magic, and there's a, there's a series of entire programmer steps around it. It's my favorite part of the program, actually. But the step that, that is really key, that is a good tip and trick for everybody that's going through this today, is to stop asking as many what questions and start asking why questions. And mm-hmm. let me tell you what I mean by that and, and why we do that. A what question is very finite. It's very limiting. It's something that is very left-brained. So if I ask you, Bruce, what price do you need to sell your business? There's really only one place you can go with that. And it's a scary place because now you got to come back and tell me your price. And maybe you don't want to tell me your price because if if you tell me your price, that's going to be the starting point I'm going to negotiate you down from. Or maybe I would have paid more and you've limited yourself. So yeah. by asking that what question, I go immediately left brain. You come up with a finite concrete answer and it's probably not going to move the conversation forward emotionally or psychologically. But if I come at you and say, let me ask Bruce, why are you interested in selling your company? There is literally, instead of a finite answer, there's an unlimited playing field you now have. You could literally answer that any way under the sun. It could be because of something you want to do personally, ways you want to spend your time. People come back and talk about time they want to spend with the grandkids, the cabin on the lake. There's all kinds of cool stuff that comes out of that. It gives you insight into who they are as a person. And then beyond that, where, where most people make a mistake is they stop with like the first why question, like, oh, great, thanks, that's super helpful. And then you move on. No, that's just the beginning of the conversation. With what we do around asymmetric negotiation, you want to follow the Toyota model. And I'm not sure if you've heard of the Toyota model. It's basically mm. a strategy Toyota used to make sure they ask the question why five times over any engineering strategy they deploy in their product to make sure that they've got a full understanding of why that clock was installed in the center of the dashboard and why the wiring was put where it was and why it was actually an LED or, you know, instead of like an analog, all these different things that really force them to get to the root of every single thing about their car. We want to do the same thing. We want to get to the root of every single thing about the business and more importantly, the business owner. And if you do that technique, and you follow the system that's set up, and you keep asking those why questions, every time you do that, you get a deeper understanding and appreciation for the person, what they're going through, what they're looking for specifically. You can ask good follow-up questions that really get to the heart of what they need. By the time that dialogue is over, and we typically do this in the first call, like between 40 minutes and and like 50 minutes, it doesn't even take an hour, uh, Mm -hmm. we will understand exactly what they want to need, why they want to need it, why it's important to them at an emotional and psychological level, and whether or not that fits what we're looking for in our profile. And if it does, we can move that conversation forward to an LOI within like a couple weeks after that first dialogue, having first met them, whereas everybody else I know, it takes them like six months. And it's just a war. Yeah, it's interesting because, well, and it's exactly that because you're fighting over 
terms, right? You're you're fighting over the you know what is the deal going to look like as opposed to the under sort of underlying motivating needs. Like like if you can address the underlying motivating needs, then the terms kind of figure themselves out, right? Like it's no, it's like it, it's it's almost uh, you know it, it, they resolve themselves if you're addressing the underlying needs. But if you're just that kind of this term level, you're just dancing around the issues and you're just kind of going back and forth, and there's no real addressing of well. You know what is really really motivating someone to go through this transaction. If if you can hit that, then great. You're hitting all the buttons, and the deal gets done. I I can see how that strategy is much more effective. Tell us a little bit more about Spartans and Alliance and Stone Peak Alliance in terms of how, how those organizations work, how you're involved with them, so people can understand a little bit more. Yeah, so Spartans Alliance is a group where we work with entrepreneurs that are interested in these techniques to either buy and sell companies for a living, to go and buy a competitor or to sell their company for the highest possible price. Uh, We've also got a series of companies that sit outside of the work we do with individual entrepreneurs, which is really the Stone Peak companies. Uh, Stone Peak Alliance is our M&A firm, so we sell companies through that organization using our boost technique, which allows us to get 20 to 40% more value out of a sale than any other competitor that typically goes through that transaction. We've also got a couple other companies, Stone Peak Associates, which is the group we use as our growth agency. That allows us to double or triple the revenue of a company before we turn around and sell it, which is Mm -hmm. fantastic for any entrepreneur. That's what you want. And we've Mm -hmm. also got uh, Stone Peak Equity, which is a group that uh, we we source all of our our funding for, for these purchases. And we provide that to people that participate in Spartans Alliance as well. So right now we've got uh, around $90 million that we need to place um, through our equity arm. And that goes out to different entrepreneurs that we work with or different deals that we tick on ourselves. That's great. If people want to find out more about you, about any of those organizations, what's the best way to get that information? Check us out at www.spartansalliance.com. That's Spartans with an S, alliance.com. And on there, on the website, you've got access to different uh, video content, free materials that we put out there. We've got deal room discussions we do every Thursday that allows us to go through and talk about real deals that we're taking down each and every week, the strategies, the techniques. You can reach out to us through the website to get access to some of those materials as well. And uh, yeah, there's also Facebook, there's uh, LinkedIn. You can follow us on any number of those social media platforms. Great. I'll make sure that all those links and handles and URLs and everything are on the show notes so people can, can click through and get that information. Bart, this has been a pleasure. I, I love the kind of whole inorganic growth strategy. I mean, I, organic growth is great, but you know, there are times when it's just it's so much easier and so much faster. And I think that you know the, the challenges that people typically face, you've addressed really well with this whole kind of looking at the negotiation process and reframing that. So really helpful for folks. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. You got it. I mean, the way we look at it is that if you're on the path to, to wealth and victory, why not take the escalator rather than the stairs? You, <laughs> I love you it. can do yeah. it the hard way, but if somebody's going to basically just take you up to the top and, and make it easier, why not do that? But Bruce, it's been a pleasure and an honor. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you, Bart. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>